This ad is organised and funded by Sanofi's Together Against RSV campaign. You might be thinking, what is RSV Zoe? And I've just been learning all about it. So let me tell you. Respiratory syncytial virus, easy for me to say, or RSV as it's more commonly known, is a really common virus that causes infection in the lower part of the respiratory system in babies and children. In fact, 90% of all children, by the time they reach two, will unfortunately experience a respiratory virus. But the good news is that most RSV illnesses are mild and clear upon their own. But unfortunately, some cases can be more serious. Bronchitis and pneumonia are types of these infections that you might have heard of that are often caused by RSV. In fact, when Jessie was little, about eight months, she had quite severe bronchitis. And I do wish I'd known more about it and how to manage it before it happened. So if you want to get yourself clued up on RSV, what it is, what can be done to prevent it and how to spot the signs and symptoms so that you can be better prepared with your children, then you can visit Sanofi's Together Against RSV website for further information www.togetheragainstrsv.com and there you'll find loads of helpful advice about infant RSV. Hey, it is Zoe Blasky. Welcome back to Motherkind, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more self-awareness, ease, joy, and purpose. Thank you if you come back every week to listen, learn, and feel inspired. If you love the podcast, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button. It really, really does help. I'm recording this for you in the first week of December and I've got to tell you, I am feeling frazzled. I wonder how you guys are doing out there. Both my girls, Jessie, who is going to be seven, and Rose, who is three, have their birthdays in December, which was just a crazy idea to give birth to both my children in the same month of December, because on top of all the Christmas mental load, which we know is huge, I also have birthdays to think about, plan for, buy for, organize. And I honestly feel like right now my life is just one long to-do list. And for Jessie's birthday, we are having her first ever sleepover or wakeover, as my dad used to call them back in the day. Got to love a dad joke. So wish me luck with that. I am over on Instagram, Zoe.Blasky, talking tons about the mental load at Christmas and some of the best tools, tips, things that I have learned and practiced over the years so that we get to actually enjoy December too. And trust me, the reason I share about that so much is because I constantly have to remind myself of it. I definitely, definitely have that type A thing in me where I just want to make everything perfect and tick everything off. So it's basically a reminder to myself, most of my content. So please do go over and have a look on Instagram what I'm chatting about. As you might know, if you're a regular listener, in December, we re-release the most popular episodes from the year. And this week's guest is the amazing Dr. Julie Smith. She's a clinical psychologist, online educator. You probably bought her book because I think most of the country did. Why has nobody told me this before? Which was a massive bestseller. 
She's also a mum to three young children. And when we first released this episode back in June, so many of you loved it. I got loads of DMs. Kate messaged me to tell me that she had had a massive light bulb moment when Dr. Julie spoke about her realisation about self-care, that she has to look after herself if she is going to be able to parent her children how she wants to. I had another message from a listener called Sam saying what she loved most about this episode was hearing about Dr. Julie's parenting mistakes and just how normal that made her feel. And she said it just, yeah, just completely normalized the fact that I also make tons of mistakes. Amen to that. Let me tell you, there isn't a mother out there who doesn't mess up, drop balls, make mistakes, have regrets, feel guilty, even the ones that we might think look perfect, like Dr. Julie. So I hope that if you haven't listened to this episode, you love it. I hope if you already have listened, you take something new from it, which I guarantee you will, because there is so much in it. Here it is. Welcome. I'm so excited to get to know you and chat to you this morning. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So I wanted to ask you about your meteoric rise to success because you've got three kids and it sounds like you're running a really successful, but, you know, a practice that fitted around your kids and your life. And suddenly you are now this phenomenon with millions of followers, a bestseller. How on earth are you beginning to handle that massive shift and that tension, I guess, of wanting to still be that really present mother, but also leaning into this huge success. What's that been like? Yeah, a massive, massive journey for me emotionally, because I, you know, I wasn't running this sort of like, you know, big private practice or anything. It was just me in the back garden. When I left the NHS, it really was for the reason that, you know, I'd had two children I couldn't manage it all, not well anyway. And I was really kind of struggling to, you know, we're very small. I wasn't sleeping at night. I was having to leave super early in the morning. And I thought, well, if I'm going to have some sort of balance, maybe I could see private clients during the day when my little one's at school and sort of manage family life in a more balanced way. And that worked really well. And I did. I, I didn't sort of do anything too wild. I would just see a few people in the day that was enough to get by. And then I could pick the children up and be mum for the afternoon and that kind of thing. Or I would see people in the evening when my husband got home and he was putting the kids to bed. So we had this kind of balance and that was really nice, a really nice time. And then I kind of started putting these videos online because I noticed that lots of people who were coming to therapy, once they had the educational aspect of therapy, they found it really, really helpful. And so I started to kind of get on my high horse about this should be more available to people. They shouldn't have to pay to come see someone like me to find it out. So my husband said, oh yeah, go on then, put something online or you know, make a YouTube video or something. So we started to do that. We made a couple of terrible YouTube videos to start with. At that point, my husband said, oh, look at this new app. It's called TikTok. And Oh, look at all this amazing comedy and this dancing and stuff. So we loved it straight away. We kind of, it seemed really fun. And he said, well, you know, if you're trying to access people, this is where all their attention is. You know, this is where people are looking. So that was when we started to put things on there. And then, you know, within a matter of a few weeks, everything started to blow up and the, the videos were getting kind of wild numbers of views. 
And then things started to rapidly change because, you know, he said, well, you, you can't stop now. I was getting all these messages from, from people saying, this is really helping me. I'm waiting for each video each day and, and what's coming next and asking questions and things like that. So it felt like we were having a really positive impact. And then the pandemic hit and we felt, well, we can't stop now. Let's see people through this. Let's go. And But we always felt like it was a temporary thing. It was a sort of, wow, this is an amazing opportunity to reach lots of people. So let's just go for it. We went at it with so much effort as if it was going to end in a couple of months time, but it didn't, it just kept going. And so somewhere along the way, well, plenty of times along the way, I would stop and go, is this what I really want? Because I'm finding this really hard. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I want to spend more time with the children. I'm not okay with how much time I'm having to spend, you know, do all of this stuff. And, and yeah, I had some really kind of deep moments really where I would try to, you know, really sort of reevaluate. Yes, this is a brilliant opportunity. It's, you know, a positive thing that we're doing for people, but also I want to see my kids more and, you know, really kind of having to hash out those decisions. I don't think I sort of had a really clear idea of exactly what I wanted and made that happen straight away. It's been a matter of sort of rebalancing over the last two years. And, and actually in the last sort of six months, I got to a point where I said, do you know what? I want to take a day back to spend some more time with my youngest son who's not at school yet so that I can take him to the little clubs that I used to take my other ones to. And, you know, those things that are really important. And it's my favorite day of the week. I love it. You know, Wednesdays I get to spend with him and we do football and swimming and all those things. And that was so important for me and my own well-being. It just aligns with how I want to be in terms of presence. And and because I have the choice, I recognize a lot of people don't have that choice. You know, if you're working three jobs to keep a roof over your children's heads, then gosh, you know, they are super women. And I'm so lucky that doing this stuff has put me in a position where I can now choose to take a little bit of time back and try to balance it out. But it's a constant struggle. It's never completely right. At any point, did you think, is it like, be careful what you wish for? Like you set Mm. out with this... Like I want to reach millions of people and now you do. Did you ever think, oh my gosh, do I even want this? Oh, all the time. Because I I never had any ambitions to be a public person. I'm quite a sort of quiet, introverted person and I'm happy spending time alone or, you know, in the therapy room with one person at a time was just ideal. And it actually makes you quite vulnerable putting yourself out there online. and, And so there was that aspect that I was kind of facing fears in some ways, but also all these emails are coming through constantly every day. Would you like to do this? Would you like to do that? And, you know, there's this part of your brain saying, wow, this is once in a lifetime. How can you say no to this thing? And and then there's other part going, oh, but I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I'm home in time to put the children to bed. And I want to, you know, and I'm sure that every mother has that sort of constant tug of how much do you focus on your career and how much do you pull back? And those sorts of decisions are huge. It's not easy, but like a positive problem to have in that I had choices around it and I I wasn't forced to do any of it. And have you got any tools? I think you're so well known for your incredible tools that you pull out of this magical bag. Have you got any tools that you've used to help mothers with that tension and you having been through it yourself the last couple of years? Yeah, I think something that helps me is I always come back to little values check-ins. I included them in the book, but I do them on a fairly regular basis where I just pull out a piece of paper and you have a think about those different areas of your life and how you want to be, not what you want to happen to you, but the kind of person you want to be in those areas of your life. So, you know, what does it mean to me to be a good parent or what kind of parent do I want to be? 
And what does that look like in concrete behavioral terms? You know, what does that mean I will be doing during the week or not doing? And and then also in my career or lifelong learning or my marriage or my friendships and all those things. And you sort of almost map out the different areas of your life and you stick in the sort of things that most matter to you. And then you also can look at, okay, how important is this to me? And how much am I living in line with it at the moment? The thing is about life is it pulls you in one direction and it pulls you away from others at the same time. So you're constantly being pulled in different directions, but doing the values check-in allows you to notice that. It allows you to notice when you've been pulled away from something that matters to you so that you can do something to redirect and pull it back. And because actually, you know, a lot of people who come along to therapy will say things like, you know, they're not really sure what the exact problem is. Things just don't feel right. And often, you know, doing those kind of opening up the value system and beginning to recognize where you've been pulled away from something that's actually really important to you can really help to just redirect and bring back that sense of kind of meaning and purpose. So definitely that, because that's enabled me to keep re-evaluating all the way along. When I was getting really unhappy with it, it enabled me to say, it's because I'm not spending my time with the children and I want to pull back a bit. So rather than become self-critical about it, enable me to go, I will be happier if I take some more time back. So, yeah. It sounds like presence is one of your top values. What are your other top values with that parenting lens, that family lens? Do you know, I think with all of this happening and this sort of increase in stress, I notice that I value not only being present, but being a calm presence and you know children have these huge ups and downs of emotion and as a parent I am much more able to deal with that in the way that I want to deal with that when I am calm and less stressed so again that opened up a whole sort of I guess the realization that the more I look after myself the better I look after them and let's say I go for a little run because I like to run outside when it's like this kind of weather and stuff. And it really does something to me where I'm so revitalized that even the next morning when I wake up with the kids and we're at breakfast and I don't know, someone has a tantrum, I'm so much more able to deal with it when I've had these little moments for myself. It doesn't mean I've had a weekend at a retreat or anything wonderful like that. Just those little moments for myself enable me to recharge enough that I can deal with those ups and downs in a sort of calm way that I'm proud of. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? And I love how you said that's not just being present, it's being that calm presence. But I think like you're saying, in order for us to get there, we have to do something, don't we? Because those meltdowns and just the intensity of being around young children's emotions can knock us off. And I wanted to ask you about that because you're known for such wisdom and brilliance around feelings and emotions. I wanted to ask about that interplay between our own feelings and emotions overspilling and being able to understand them as the parent and then the link being able to then understand our children's emotions. Tell us about that. I know it's brilliantly described in the book, but can you put that sort of parenting lens on it? I think it always comes back to responding to any kind of emotional state with curiosity as opposed to criticism. So whatever you feel, and whatever they feel, it doesn't say something about who you are as a person. It's an experience that is washing over you. And if you criticize yourself for that, it will tend to make it worse in the long term. 
you'll have more, you know, negative emotions will arrive, right? Because you're sort of driving yourself into the ground with that. If you turn to emotional experience with curiosity, what's going on here? What does this tell me? You know, all emotion has some sort of information to offer because emotion is essentially an interpretation that your brain is offering to you about what's going on sort of the meaning of things around you. And if you can sort of look at that with curiosity, sometimes you'll say, oh, actually, maybe this emotion isn't warranted in this situation. I've thought it through, or maybe the intensity of that emotion isn't proportionate to the situation I'm in. Maybe it's influenced by the fact that I didn't sleep well last night, or I'm dehydrated, or I had an argument with my husband yesterday, or whatever it is. You can sort of pull those things together and see the emotion for what it is, which is one possible interpretation. I guess you can only get to that point if you first look at it with curiosity. Very easy to sit here and say, very hard to do in the moment, right? When something triggers you and you just feel something so intense. And it's the same with the children, isn't it? You know, something fires off and they feel something so strongly. And that can often then cause us to feel something strongly as well. If it's really difficult moment and I don't know, you've just got to get everyone to school and someone's complaining about a lost sock or, you know, whatever it is. And so emotion always kind of can jump between people, can't it? I don't want anyone to ever think that because I have access to those skills and I'm a psychologist that I must live this like super calm, problem-free life. And it just isn't, I never, ever want to portray that because I think it's a big lie that women get sort of told that there's some sort of perfect family out there who don't, you know, this is part of life and it's part of what we teach children is to overcome those moments and to Yes, experience sometimes very intense emotion and then trust that it's going to come back down and and do things to help that emotion come back down. So I think we can only do that if we don't demonize emotion, but enable it to be an experience that's going to pass and knowing that it will. Yeah, it's so helpful, especially, you know, leaning with that curiosity instead of that criticism. It's just like you say, it's bloody hard in the moment, isn't it? When you're late for school and someone's having a meltdown about a shoe or you know, this morning I had it where I'd forgotten to print something off for show and tell and it was like a big meltdown and we were late. I was like, I know what to do in that moment. You know, I know what the quote unquote right thing to do is, but like you say, it's just so challenging, isn't it? They're like little balls of feeling. What have you learned about yourself through motherhood? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) these are the sorts of questions that set me off. I think there's no subject more emotionally powerful, is there? Tell me, I do this day in, day out. I'm always crying. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it really does sort of trigger, for me, having children flipped everything upside down. I didn't even really know I wanted children until probably just before, probably once I was married and then had that sort of, yes, I would like to have children now. But before I was so focused on my career and working and it's not something that I really gave lots of time or thought to. But once I decided to have children and probably from the moment I was pregnant or knew I was pregnant, something very drastic changes, doesn't it? And the process of pregnancy and birth definitely hugely changed my respect for my own body completely. I have such a huge respect for what my body is capable of, what it has done for me and my children. And I'm just, I'm in awe of women and what their bodies are capable of. I think that is just outstanding and it massively changed that. So that changed my relationship with myself. And the fact that I had a daughter first also probably added to that in that I knew I wanted her to grow up 
respecting her own body and her own self and feeling confident and all of those things. So I knew that I couldn't help her to become that if I didn't also demonstrate that. So I'm very careful about how I talk about myself or anything like that out loud. So it changed my relationship with myself in that way. But yeah, I mean, there's, oh gosh, I could probably talk <laughs> legs of a donkey here and go on and on. But yeah, I mean, that's probably a good starting point, I guess. What are some of the other things that you really tried to model? So confidence and body, um, body positivity and love. What are the other sort of things that you really want your three children to look up and see when they look at you? Failure all the time. I want them to be okay with making mistakes. And, you know, I see that, you know, when children are young, this sort of, if I get it wrong, that's not okay. And it's devastating. And it means I need to not try again. And <laughs> whenever that happens, they get a, a right sort of earful from me about some, <laughs> sounds like some motivational talk off YouTube or something, you know, Michael Jordan scored, you know, missed more baskets than he ever scored and all this kind of stuff. And, and in some ways, those are my kind of poor attempts to just reinforce a kind of almost a growth mindset that failure and mistakes are inevitable for every single person. And the people who are best at whatever it is you're trying to be good at have failed the most. And it's how you learn and it's okay. And I don't mind what you get on your spelling test, as long as I know you've worked really hard on trying to learn them. Because, you know, I think you learn more from finding out how hard you're willing to work on something than you do by the score at the end of the day. That makes me also then more open about my own failures with them and mistakes. I want them to see when I've not done well at something and that I'm okay with it. So I think, you know, it's those kind of things probably you learn as you go, don't you? And because you learn about what you want for them enables you to want that for yourself. So you start to live it yourself. My experience in motherhood is that that is by far the most profound thing. I'm like, well, if I want them to be confident and like you say, have a growth mindset and like themselves, love themselves even, then I've got to grow into that myself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's quite different, isn't it? than a lot of the sort of more old fashioned, like the eighties parenting you and I would have had, which was like the opposite of that, (laughs) you know, do as I say, not as I do. And I think it's quite affronting can be, can't it? To think, okay, well, if I want my kids to to develop these qualities, I've got to do it myself. What are the qualities within yourself that you're still developing and working on? I guess another one that kind of links to that is saying sorry. So like you said, you know, back in the day, you would never expect a parent to ever say sorry for anything. But I probably learned this from the children, you know, that I noticed that they found it, maybe they didn't find it easy, but they were better at doing it, at calming down and then returning to say sorry. Sorry, mommy. And then I kind of realized, well, I should be doing the same. This is a positive thing to do. So, you know, if I sort of say something out of turn or I, you know, raise my voice and then I think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't warranted or, you know, whatever it is. Once we have that little kind of reconnect and the little cuddle, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't want to sort of, you know, lose my temper or kind of whatever it was. And we start again. That's definitely made me a better person. I'm more able to apologize than I ever. I think, you know, back in the day when shame was a sort of big part of parenting, that makes it harder to say sorry, doesn't it? If you feel so terrible at what you've done, it's even harder to say sorry. And so when I kind of started being able to do that, I think that helped. That made me feel 
better about things I think you feel like you can resolve it more yeah I do that as well and I think it's just such a powerful thing to model isn't it like linked to what you were talking about with failure like I'm gonna get things wrong too but what we do is we we repair that yeah like I can't expect my little Jessie to repair with her sister if I can't do it with her but I think you're right it takes quite a lot of deprogramming because when my one of my family members saw me apologizing to Jessie. She was like, you can't do that because you'll make her think that you haven't got enough power and she's got the power. And I was like, no, 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 it's not, it's not about that. That sort of eighties shame-based, as you say, can be quite ingrained. I wanted to ask you about the core foundations for mental well-being and mental health. And you share those as sleep connection, movement, and nutrition. Yeah. And for mothers, particularly new mothers, those are often, and I'm sure it'd be interesting to get your perspective on how you handled those four things, you know, in that really intense time. Cause those were the first things that went for me. I stopped sleeping. Yeah. I stopped connecting. I felt really isolated. You know, I felt quite alone and I didn't move cause I didn't have time to do the exercise that I was normally doing. And I was just shoving sort of toast and jam constantly in my mouth around cluster feeds. <laughs> so I wonder, <laughs> what was your experience and, and what can we do, you know, with those four pillars? Like I think we all know that they're important at this point because of amazing people like you, you know, telling us how important those are. But I think for mothers, those are the things that go first. So what can we do? I mean, I massively relate and I did not do any of it perfect. I probably got them all wrong, to be honest with you. (laughs) All of my babies have been born in the autumn time. So I was going into motherhood, you know, in those sort of early baby days with dark afternoons and dark mornings and bad weather and not really wanting to get out of bed, just wanting to cuddle the baby all day and not sleeping well and then not eating well because I would sort of crave sugar and all those kind of things because I hadn't slept. And but as I said, I'm a quite introvert person. I didn't probably join, I don't know if I joined any clubs actually. I think I went to one group when my first daughter was born. And I see that as a really positive experience. And yet I didn't make it happen every time. We had a, you know, things going on, moving house, doing a house, or that kind of thing. So you you get busy and you prioritize other things. And you try to sort of also nurture this baby alongside normal life rather than suggesting that anything in life should kind of cut you a break for a while while you bring up this baby. You know, this is real sense, isn't there? That we just kind of do that alongside everything else. And that's what I tried to do. I was, I just remember being busy all the time and probably just eating not the right things. Yeah. Just sort of, it didn't do me any good for sure. My eldest started school and met a couple of mums and we would meet for a coffee once a week for one hour in a coffee shop because we each had a a younger one and it was a highlight of my week and I remember thinking why why have I not done this previously and it just gave me this sort of huge sort of leap forward that made me kind of realize you know you have to do this stuff because when you get into that sort of insular way of living with a baby, which is all you really want at that point, isn't it? You just want to stay in bed with the baby and cuddle up and feed and then rest a little bit. And and to a degree, you have to do that for a while, I think. But also this kind of surge in energy that you get from talking to other adults and, you know, spending time not doing laundry and not cleaning the house and all the rubbish jobs that 
you just feel like you have to be doing all the time. Yeah, it definitely made a, a positive difference for me. So, but I guess at the same time, it's so easy to preach when you haven't got a newborn on your shoulder. It's so easy to go, don't eat toast and tea, you know, make a salad. Who's got time to make a salad when you've got a newborn crying to be fed, right? You know, so I mean, it's, I get that it's really easy to say and much harder to do in reality. So I think we also have to cut ourselves some slack because we don't want to add self-criticism to the mix. You know, if we're struggling, we don't also want to then kick ourselves while we're down and blame ourselves for not getting it done perfectly. And there is no perfect about it. It's a survival thing. You've got to get through. If you're not sleeping, lack of sleep is used as a form of torture. It's for a reason, right? It has a huge impact on everything. And so, you know, at those points, you have to just get through and do what's best for you at that point. But I think always keeping a bit of an ear out in terms of like looking at what is one thing I could do that could help give me that little bit of boost today? You know, it might just be going out for a walk or calling a friend, you know, it could be something really simple that is easy to dismiss, but those things can give you that little boost that gives you another boost to try something else. It gives you another boost and it makes the whole experience more enjoyable, I think. Yeah. It's like that sort of habit stacking, isn't it? Yeah. It's just so amazing how effective that is that you can just do that one thing. And then as you say, you can stack that upward spiral. Just a quick word from this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. AG1 has 75 whole food source ingredients designed to optimize the key areas of our health. It takes minutes to mix up. So with very little time in our busy lives, taking my Athletic Greens is the one thing I can do every single day to take care of myself. And every time I have it, I'm showing myself through my actions that I deserve to feel good and I am worth looking after. It helps me remember my mantra. I can only be the mother I want to be when I look after myself too. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Back to the episode. What do you wish, you know, if you're going to put a motherhood lens on that, what do you wish that all mothers knew from your experience and things that you've learned in your psychology rooms as well? Oh, gosh. Well, probably the best advice that I had along the way was that at every stage, there will be something you love about it and something you really hate about it. And it has really lovely parts and really difficult parts and that they are all temporary. So hold on to that joy you feel from the good parts, savor them because they will pass with each stage and remember that the most difficult parts are temporary too. So all you have to do is get through it at this point because then this new stage starts and there's a new set of challenges, but there's also a new set of joys and new things to appreciate. So at each stage, I think, sort of holding on to that sort of feeling that it's all temporary makes it easier to get through the difficult parts, but also enables you to hold on to gratitude for the best bits. Mm, that's really beautiful. That's made me feel really emotional. Maybe it did I'm with going- me. Yeah. I mean, I held on to it. it. Someone said that to me years ago when I had two little ones, you know, my first two are only two years apart. When I had my second, 
and we were moving house and it was just like, oh, and someone said that to me and I thought, yeah, and that enabled me to um, hold on to some of those middle of the night cuddles and stuff like that. Is there anything that you do to help you savor? I think that's such a powerful word. Sometimes I do this thing, you know, I jot it down, I write down those moments or I try and like take a photo in my mind because I know, and you know, because of negativity bias, our minds are sort of wired to forget all the good stuff, isn't it? But there's some things that you do to help you get those savory, savory moments. That's a food type (laughs) to savor those moments. Gratitude practice is a great way to do that. And I remember trying to start one of those what is it like a, a line a day diaries or something oh, yeah. where I could pop in different lovely things that they'd said or things that I was grateful for. And, and of course I was a mother of three. When was I ever going to keep up that thing? And so that remains empty. But I think in general, it's not so much necessary to have a really formal practice that just adds to your to-do list, but to keep those things in mind so that when you're having a difficult moment, you can breathe, recognize that this is chaos. What kind of job is this? This is chaos. Breathe through it. Recognize there's only a certain number of years and then it will have passed and they'll be grown up and those kind of things. But then also to, I think in those moments when there's the potential to feel grateful or joyful that we make this choice in the moment, you can busy yourself and let that moment pass. But you can just take these few extra seconds and just breathe in for a moment. And I think that's probably the difference between when I had them all small and there was so much going on that there is that you know you notice the stress is high and so you just oh I've got to get on to the next thing, got to get on to the next thing. And something I've done sort of more recently is remember that okay, let's say I mean because we do a lot of work at night once the kids are in bed. And for a while there would be this kind of rush of oh I've got to get going because I don't want to stay up till too late. So I've got to get going. And I'd be rushing bedtime. And I've realized when I stopped rushing that and I took some time to lay down with my toddler for half an hour and have cuddles and hear that some little sweet nothings that he'd be whispering in my ear. And oh gosh, now I just have all these little moments that I cherish and it's beautiful. And I know he's my last, so I probably, you know, hold on to that sort of even more so. But when I know that when I take those moments and just stretch them out a little bit, I love that. And it makes everything easier for me. So, you know, I don't think there's any kind of clear, do this and get pen and paper out and then everything will be all right. I think it's always keeping that in mind that at any point I can choose to savor this, even when it's chaos, or I can just stress and criticize myself for not making it look like a cover of a magazine. <laughs> you know, and you got like sick down your arm and you're like, okay, this is me. This is fine. But yeah. You know, sometimes I see those photos on Instagram and I'm like, wow, like my life is so far away yeah. from any of that. But I think it's so true. Like yesterday I had such a hard afternoon with the girls. They were fighting every three minutes. I was just basically refereeing for three hours. And then I made a beautiful homemade fish fingers with, you know, like a turmeric crumb. I was like, and everyone just screamed and threw it on the floor and rejected it. And, <laughs> and I was just like crying. I was crying when um, my husband guy got home, but then they got in the bath and they did quite a sweet little thing where they made up this game. And I, I thought exactly what you're sharing. I thought to myself, so you better just sit and enjoy this because otherwise it's just all too hard. Otherwise, what am I doing? Like this yes. is the worst thing ever. So I was like, you've got to take these little moments and like you said, like turn the volume up on them yeah. because it did dim the volume down on like the hellish 
three hours that I'd had before. It's just yeah. got to do it, right? Yeah. And I think you have to sort of cut yourself the slack for having been through several hours of refereeing and stuff like that, that we all do and recognize that that's no small feat. Like if you were going to some workplace and expected to do that for a day and be paid for it, you'd be getting home saying, do you know what? I need a bit of rest now because that's been a really tough day at work. (laughs) But there's something about our relentlessness that we have to sort of keep going and don't acknowledge for ourselves that it was really tough today. The kids were all arguing or really challenging and it was really hard work and I've got a headache because I'm so stressed about it. Maybe, just maybe I could leave the washing up till the morning or whatever it is, just give myself a little bit of a, well done, mum. You know, you're doing a good job. This is tough some days. So I guess kind of cutting ourselves a bit of slack as well. Yeah, so true. But yet what I hear from most mums that I speak to is that we often do the opposite, which is going to criticising ourselves. Well, if I'd have, you know, if I'd have got that parenting strategy right I heard about, then that argument would have happened. Or if I'd have done this or it's my fault. Why do we do that? What is it in our brains? Is it core beliefs? Is it the way that we're wired? What is that tendency to criticise about? Yeah, we're all our own worst critics, aren't we? And and I think we learn our way of speaking to ourselves from a very early age. And, you know, what we hear around us or what is spoken to us sort of gets internalized as well. So, you know, voices we hear become that internal voice to a degree. But also it's a sign that you really care about something. You know, if you weren't constantly trying to evaluate how you were doing at parenting, then maybe that wouldn't be it a great sign that it shows that you really, really care about doing this well when you're doing that. But also, I guess if you compare that to something like, let's say an elite athlete, right? People that perform at their best at something, they would never choose their high school bully to sit in their corner as their coach because they know it wouldn't help them do better. You know, they very carefully pick someone that they have a great trusting relationship with who absolutely has their back all the time, no matter what the score, because they want the best for them. And so, yes, they will always be honest with them. Like, yes, that was a mistake. You messed up there. Here's what to do next. Let's move on from this. So, you know, we want that internal voice and the way we speak to ourselves to sound more like a coach than a high school bully or a critical parent or whatever it is. And it will help us to move forward. And if we are being overly critical of ourselves, that will hold us back. And I guess we can't eradicate it, right? Because it's a lifetime of habit and those thoughts just arrive. But what we can do is make sure that we don't let it go unchecked and drive us into the ground, that we come back at it with something more compassionate. And interestingly, A lovely technique that we often talk about in therapy when people are trying to tackle this and be more self-compassionate, you're never teaching compassion from scratch, right? Those people who are most self-critical are often also most compassionate, but all that compassion goes outwards. It's like a sun rays. It's all going outwards, but they just don't direct any of it towards themselves. And for those people, especially parents, a great technique is to enable them to kind of direct that compassion towards themselves is to get them to think about, okay, let's say your child that you love unconditionally was in exactly your position right now with all the problems that you face. What would you want them to have the strength to do for themselves? How would you want them to speak to themselves about it? What would you want them to 
see in this situation? And how does that differ then from how you're speaking to yourself and what you're expecting of yourself? Sometimes engaging with that sort of feeling, you know, someone that you have this unconditional love for enables you to engage with that compassion which can be really hard to do if you're just trying to think, well, how do I be more compassionate to myself? And the reality is it's not indulgence. It's not just being super kind to yourself and letting yourself off the hook. Often it's doing the really difficult thing, you know, like if, I don't know, let's say my daughter didn't want to go to school one day, let's say, and just because she didn't fancy it, then maybe indulgence would be saying, okay, let's stay off. And then potentially slipping into something destructive, compassion would be saying, I know that it's hard. Some days you don't feel like doing something, but I know that the best thing for your future is a good education. And so today we're going to get over that hump and we're going to energize ourselves and do it anyway. And so often compassion is doing the harder thing because it has your best interest in the long run. So yeah, it's a very long-winded answer, but I'll talk all day about that kind of stuff because I feel really passionate about it. Me too. And I, I, you know, I was really lucky because I got to do some work with Dr. Kristen Neff, who was just incredible. She's amazing. And she came up with the concept of mindful self-compassion and the self-compassion break and loads of her tools. She came up with a lot of that through her experience of parenting her autistic Mm. son, which I just think is mind blowing. And I think, you know, like you, I just wish more parents, particularly mothers knew about some of these simple tools. Like they're not complex, but they're just like you talk about, they're not talked about enough. Yeah, probably her simplest one that I, I always remember it. For, I went to see her speak and she talk, talked about having to deal with her son's challenging behavior on a flight. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And everyone's looking and she's really struggling. And she just took this moment, she put her hand on her chest and breathed and just said, this is difficult. This is tough. And there's something about that. And I've done that plenty of times at home here. Just breathe, hold on to yourself and say, come on, we're doing all right. This is tough. This is hard. Let's go. And it's being that inner coach, isn't it? Someone that has your own back, that acknowledges this is a really hard challenge. I believe in you. Let's go. Let's move forward and be the person that you want to be in this situation. And it's quite incredible how those small, tiny moments can make such a difference in terms of the direction you go down with your own behavior. You're so right. I think we tend to think it's these big interventions and, you know, all these things. It's not, it's the little things. And the second part to that exercise is that then, you know, you say this is hard. And then she said, well, how what I do it is I remember there isn't a mother in the world, Zoe, who hasn't been through what you're going through. And that really gets me every time because yeah. I start to think I'm the only one who can't get my kids' shoes on or who can't do this. And Yeah, I do that. I say, Zoe, there's not a mum in this world who's not been where you are right now. You can do this. And it's just beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. It's probably a good point to sort of put in there about some of my own sort of failures and stuff like that. And I, uh, my son had a thing at school where like the parents go in at the end of term and see their work and stuff. And I wrote in on the wrong day in my diary. And I went to pick him up from school as usual. And I saw all the parents coming out down the street because they had been to this thing and then left early with their children. He was the only one left in the class. 
And um, honestly, I it's a struggle to even kind of swallow that back now that he was so upset and I was so upset. I just, I was trying to sort of be the parent in the situation, but I, I was so upset with myself that I recognized from how upset he was that that was an important moment. And it was just a, you know, a mistake. I'd written it in the wrong day and I'd got in, but all of that flood of everyone else can get it right. Why can't you get it right? I'm failing at this. I can't hold down work and this at the same. And and you go from being angry at the world and why are schools making this so difficult to why can't I do this? And, And, you know, and then you just get this flood of, and that is the emotions say, you know, that is all of that just saying, this is important to you. This is something you don't want to get wrong. So let's work it out. And, you know, I mean, we repaired that and we took him out for the evening to set, you know, he was our VIP for the evening. We went to the cinema and he had special dessert and all that. So we did this special repair to say, I really didn't want to do that. It means a lot to me that you care about that and let's fix it. And that really helped both of us, I think, because my husband, you know, he's tucking into his ice cream at the end of the day. My husband said, so if you have another one of these at school, would you like mummy to make it or would you like her to miss it so you can have ice cream? He said, well, I'm not sure. But it just goes to show that you can spiral into that self-criticism part and let that eat you up. Or you can turn towards it with curiosity and say, well, this means something to me. Therefore, it's worth repairing and it's worth doing something about to ensure that that changes next time. And it's amazing that sort of healing power of that, that you can get through it. And now it's something we can kind of giggle about because it turned into a a lovely evening where we had, you know, got an impromptu cinema visit (laughs) midweek. But yeah, before it was just awful. I was tearful about it for days. But we do that to ourselves, right? We expect that we have to be getting it all perfectly all the time. Yeah. And I don't think there's a mother in the world who hasn't done something like that. You know, I've got loads of things like that where I've dropped the ball and, oh my gosh, missed parties and oh, absolutely tons of it. But I think what you just said, I just wanted to underscore because it was so powerful that we first in that situation or actually any situations that are hard turn on ourselves and then we turn outward before we then do that more sort of healthy, I guess you'd call it processing of, okay, what next? Because I do that. I go, it's the school, it's my husband. I'll criticize myself. Then I become too flooded and it's almost like my system goes, ah, and then I go, okay, I'm going to put this blame out. And I see some people get stuck in that blaming out bit. How does someone move into what you did quicker maybe? Or what tools can you share so we can get to that? Okay, breathe. You're all right. What's next? I think it comes with probably practice at recognizing it. So there's probably not one sort of thing you can do, but it's the more self-aware we become about what we're thinking and what that's doing to us, then we get this opportunity to choose something different. I mean, when you're in it, you can't see the wood for the trees. It's really hard, right? You're just drowning in this kind of emotion and all these thoughts. But with a little bit of time, you then get to step back and you get this kind of bird's eye view of those thought processes. You can see what's happening. And then I think once you've done that a few times, like that's what happens in therapy, right? Metacognition is our ability to think about our thoughts. And that is a kind of main tool that is used in therapy. It's not as if once you've taught it, then everything's okay. It's that you learn first through hindsight. So you talk about, okay, what happened last week? And then what were you thinking? And so what was the impact of that? So you look back at things with curiosity and you look at what was I thinking then? And what did that make me want to do? And did I go with that urge and do it? And what was the impact of that? And you kind of just break things down. If you do that enough, you can then learn about your own patterns of 
thought and behavior. And then you can see it in the moment. So because you've practiced looking at it in hindsight, you're familiar enough with that pattern that you're more able to notice it as it happens. And when you do that, that's the key to then being able to choose something different. Yeah. And that's why I think I'm a long time journaler because yeah. that's basically what enables me to do without journaling. Like you say, I'm wood for the trees. I don't know what I'm up to, but if yeah. when I can just scribble it down, often in the notes section of my phone, it's not yeah. fancy. I can just, as you say, I can think about my thinking. I can see my patterns. I can almost disconnect from or get some perspective on my behavior. It's just game changing. It's just amazing, isn't it? It's huge. And you know what? I always sort of recommend that for people, especially who, you know, some people just aren't talkers, right? They would hate the idea of going to therapy or even telling their friends about difficult moments. But when it comes to journaling, I mean, I've used that since I was a young child without ever realizing how helpful it probably was. I was never a talker. I was quite a shy person. I would always have that urge to have a little notebook, write things down. And you know, when you've got lots, you know, that you're trying to figure out in life and, you know, different things are happening or you feel a lot of things at once, something about getting that down on the page gives you some clarity on it. It gives you that bird's eye view and that ability to sort of work through it and process it and diffuse from it, you know, take a step back from it. So I always found it helpful. And it wasn't until later on that I was exposed to the literature on it to see actually science agrees. It's really, really helpful to process emotion and difficult life experiences. So I would always recommend, in fact, through each chapter or each section of the book, I keep sort of adding in little prompts, sort of journal prompts and little questions that help you to kind of think more deeply about stuff. And you can sort of write down your answers and really kind of reflect in a helpful way. Yeah, it's so powerful. Oh, thank you. I've absolutely loved this conversation and getting to know you a little bit better has been an absolute joy. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would your one gift be and why? Apart from your book, which I would give to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) My initial thought about this was, oh, like a a voucher that says, you know, I will look after your children. Your children will be safe for 24 hours so you can go off and sleep in a dark room somewhere. But actually, maybe partly because I'm sure everyone has kind of said that, but also some sort of release from perfectionism, like a permission slip that says, I do not have to be perfect in order to be a good enough mum. I can be an imperfect human and my children will still thrive. Some sort of permission slip that says that because essentially none of us do it perfectly. There's no such thing as a perfect parent, but we all give it our best. And as long as we are showing love and compassion as much as we possibly can, the kids will do all right. Thank you so much. It's Thank I can't believe I didn't cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I, I cry every single episode, don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 
Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.